KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. I'm Charlotte Reese. Battleground states get all the attention when it's time to vote for president. So what has to happen to turn a reliably Republican or Democratic state into a battleground state? How often do these kinds of shifts in how states vote take place? And how is that list of swing states going to change by the time the next presidential election comes around four years from now? Dr. Robin Kolodny is a professor and chair of the political science department at Temple University. We're gearing up for the election and we just had the first presidential debate. And I think the whole concept of swing states and elections being decided by just a handful of states every few years is fascinating. But to start, can you just break down what it means to be a battleground state? Absolutely. So, you know, there's a lot of terms that we use when we talk about campaigning that are borrowed from war. So that's what a battleground is, right? It's the place where you have the most intense fighting. And what that means here is that you've got some states that are more closely divided in terms of partisanship. And by divided, I just mean that the numbers approach 50% on each side. There are other states, on the other hand, that are far more lopsided in the direction of one party or another. So you'll find in any map or even if you live in some of these states, that you will be almost untouched by the campaign because you're not a battleground. Right, right, definitely. And we're in Pennsylvania. So between elections for president and the governor, we've been a toss-up state for decades in so many ways. Is it normal for states to be perennial swing states like that? Or are there other states that have gone kind of back and forth pretty reliably? Oh, We're not alone, but every few years, things shift in response to demographic changes. So another state that's right now in the toss-up column, our neighbor to the west, Ohio, also has followed that kind of pattern. And actually, one way to look at that is, like Ohio, look at states where the U.S. senators are from different parties. That gives you an indication right there that There's a more moderate politics going on in that state. Sometimes not always true in the case of Ohio. It's a little more true in our case is that Pennsylvania doesn't elect far left liberals statewide or far right conservatives, for example. So in other states, though, like California, it's all if you bring everything up to the top level, everything is Democratic. Are there states this year that may be surprising? I keep hearing Texas being thrown around and it seems weird. So Texas is right leaning at the moment, but very light pink if you uh, look at these maps. And I understand why you think that. But actually, if Texas isn't truly a battleground right now, it is very likely to be in the next presidential election. And that's because of demographic change. So Texas is growing, but it isn't growing among college-educated whites. It's growing among Hispanics. It's growing with younger people. So the mix of, of the residents is changing. And because of Latino, both population growth and economic growth in Texas, people have known for a long time that is literally 
a matter of time before Texas became competitive. So like with Florida, both those states are going to get a lot more electoral votes after this census is done and we get the reapportionment. And that will certainly change the way that people campaign because it will be much more worth their while to go after a very big state like Texas. But at the moment, the two states that are, well, actually there's three that are very exciting to watch for me are Arizona, Iowa, and North Carolina. So Arizona is a state that also has been trending younger and more Hispanic. Arizona used to be a haven for retirees. And so they had an older electorate, but also a richer electorate. And so you now will see um, that surrounding Arizona, there are are states like, well, New Mexico has been solidly Democratic for a while, but Nevada now has turned into a, a reliable Democratic state statewide and Colorado. So it's surrounded by other states that experience similar kinds of demographic shifts. North Carolina actually has some parallels to Pennsylvania because North Carolina, it has rural, suburban, urban. It's got all these kinds of of divisions, but it had a past where when Republicans controlled everything, they took some advantage and drew lines for congressional districts that were suspect. And so like we had in 2018, a court ordered North Carolina to redo those districts. You recall that North Carolina had to rerun a congressional election after the 2018 elections because there was so much fraud and abuse. And I think that that has made Democratic voters who were normally pessimistic much more optimistic. Also, by the way, there's a um, very the Senate race where the Democratic candidate is ahead in North Carolina and the incumbent Democratic governor is also up for re-election. So uh, that's going to be a really intense mobilization fight. And the thing about it for the Democrats is that if they flip North Carolina like they did with Virginia, then they're starting to make some inroads into the deep south. And that should put Republicans on notice. Yeah, I like how you mentioned the statewide races, because I think that's an important part to even see how they change and what they do over the years as well. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. I, it's just another reason why Iowa is such an interesting state. Iowa has in the past sent Democrats to Congress, but it's now more evenly split than it has been. The incumbent Republican senator, Joni Ernst in Iowa, has been consistently trailing her Democratic opponent, but not by much, like within the statistical margin of error. And you have to also remember that as conservative socially as some people in Iowa have been, no state has probably been hit harder by Trump's China trade policies than Iowa. So it's a big issue about farming and equity. And, you know, we'll we'll have to see because that would be That'd be very exciting for a lot of people if Iowa were to uh, flip this time. Mm. And you mentioned the census, too, which is going to be a huge thing four years down the road. As you said, Texas could be, you know, becoming more and more of a swing state in the years to come. Is that something really, though, that we can predict four years down the road with everything going on, too? Well, again, the predictions are based on population statistics. So we tend to know 
what's going on with certain demographic groups. And so, for example, professional white women are delaying childbearing, and so they're having fewer children. And, you know, those are the kinds of trends that aren't going to, to change. So the less white, for example, a state is, the more likely they are, interestingly enough, to, to tilt toward the Democrats, even though it's not as if whiteness makes you one party or the other. It's just it's a relative shift there. But the thing is, because we know what the census is telling us now, we can see where things have been going. So Arizona will gain a congressional district, for example. So that's telling you what we've known for a while, uh, that the population is shifting more toward the Sun Belt. And by the way, the northeastern states are the ones that are going to really lose. New York will lose a seat, will lose a seat, Ohio will lose a seat. So you can get a sense of where people think there's the best opportunity. However, who knows if what's really going to be uh, the case that may slow down in the coming few years with the news that in the CARES Act prohibition for businesses getting relief money out of COVID, they couldn't really lay a lot of people off. And so the airlines have already announced um, a cutting 35,000 jobs. And the Disney Corporation announced 28,000 job cuts worldwide. And they're citing the problems of um, not getting anybody to come to other parks in Orlando area. So if that means that there are a lot of people who are less well off in some of these states that were growing because of, for example, um, tourism, Nevada is also going to feel it, by the way, then that certainly changes some people's attitudes about things like the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, it kind of speeds up maybe slower pace changes that we've seen before, considering uh, so many factors that are going into this election. Well, actually, you know what? There's not that many factors. If you think about it, it's a fairly simple thing that what the biggest challenge for both sides is to get voters registered. And sometimes I think a lot of suburban middle class people don't understand the registration challenge. What's important there is that there are there are two groups that are overlapping that have a registration problem, as we say, young people and poor people. Why? Because they move a lot. So I teach college students and I ask them you know, if, if you're a senior, so have you had the same address for the last four years? And they all chuckle because, of course, you know, you're moving from dorm to dorm or apartment to apartment. It's, you know, and then you'll move to get your first job. And then if you get a promotion, you'll move to a better place. So people who move have to re-register because even if they're in the same town, they're not going to vote um, in the same way. Likewise, if, if you're relatively poor, you're a renter and you may move to where the jobs are. So that's where the burden is, and that's why it's an advantage for Democrats to have solid registration and where you have more restrictions on voting registration, like voter ID, that tends to favor Republican voters because Republican voters tend to be in the same address for a long time. They all tend to have driver's licenses, like all of the things that some of these other laws are designed to recognize. You know, we can talk about states and voting, but it ultimately comes down to the Electoral College. And yes, it does. I'm just curious. I mean, like, what do we know about political trends across the country based on what's been happening? 
whether we go red or blue, are we becoming more of a red or blue nation altogether? Oh, that's a great question. And that's where I'm saying that we'll, we will know a lot when we see what happens in Florida, which is where I grew up, and that uh, Florida went Democratic both times for Obama. This is not that long ago. And remember, of course, famously, in 2000, Florida went for George W. Bush. So 2000 and 2004, twice they went for a Bush. But in 2008 and 2012, they went Democratic. And then in 2016, they went Republican. So like Texas... Florida is a, a state that's growing with lots of different demographic groups. In the news, there's been a lot of discussion about Florida's new law, or I guess it was a referendum, to re-enfranchise prisoners who had served their time. But I'm wondering why there isn't more mention of the considerable number, about 400,000, it could be higher, Puerto Ricans who moved to Florida since 2017 after the devastation of two hurricanes and an earthquake. And even though that means that Hispanic numbers have increased in Florida, it's very different to talk about South Florida's Cubans than it is to talk about Puerto Ricans who are leaving precisely because they lost their homes, they lost their businesses, they have no you know, other jobs. And they've actually pushed a couple of counties in Central Florida to be now majority Hispanic. So if the trend keeps going the way that we think it's going, interestingly, some of these swing states will become more democratic. But it also means that the red states will get redder. And that's not necessarily a great thing, because when you have states that are really deeply partisan one way or another, it stymies important policy conversation. And so just because you could, you can make a, a case for how the Republican Party right now is probably too far right for most of the people who would normally have voted for it. And, and this is a major explanation. But that doesn't mean the Republican Party is always going to be that. And it doesn't mean that they couldn't have a future leader that would change some of the direction of the party's platform. So it's hard to say you know, it, that demographics is not quite so easy. But the, this other problem about the change of um, the world of work, that's really uh, significant. So if we, you know, if we do, for example, make a lot of investments in renewable energy, as Biden says, then that actually attracts educated and uneducated. It creates a whole new class of worker who's differently oriented than, say, an oil worker is now in Louisiana or Texas. Right. And we, we talk about the different parties and, you know, we have a Republican president right now, but in 2016, he lost the popular vote. And it always comes That's back right. to popular vote, electoral college. I mean, how often does this happen? Is it, you know, how much of an inconsistency is it in the realm of past elections? Well, it's only been... 2000 was an instance, 2016 was an instance, but before that, that, you have to go back to 1888. So that's why the Electoral College hasn't been that controversial until recently. If it produces another in this election, you will see much more pressure to move to abolish it. And, you know, there are a lot of countries who have different electoral rules about how to pick leaders. And, and so it's not just as simple as saying, oh, let the voters decide directly. 
it, it would be there's the you know the compact that's going around the 12 states have ratified saying I'll give all of my electoral votes the candidate that wins the popular vote but there are other issues like the fact that the states run elections and that means that there's 50 different sets of laws about how to get on the ballot so I wonder how people would get around that and to be blunt to go ahead and either dramatically reform or abolish the Electoral College, we're going to need to have another constitutional convention, which the framers provided for in the Constitution. They said there's two routes for amendments. One is to put it through the Congress and then ask three-fourths of the states to ratify it. Another one is to hold a constitutional convention. Well, Americans have been terrified. They have um, an attachment to the Constitution that's really unique among democratic societies. France is in its fifth constitution, and they don't seem like they're unstable to us, like we're worried that uh, France is going to be non-democratic. But this is abolishing the Electoral College is unlikely to be something that's going to work through the states. It would have to be something other than that. And so we'll have to see uh, if there's a political will to do it. Mm-hmm. Going back to battleground states, if, you know, are there takeaways or interesting facts that voters should know when it comes to battleground states and how maybe important they are in presidential elections? Oh, that's interesting. So the the biggest issue with this election is the coronavirus, because it complicates not only the question of voting in person or voting by mail, but also what kinds of ways traditional party workers are supposed to talk with people. We've known for a long time that knocking on people's doors and talking to them personally actually goes a long way to convincing them to vote on election day. Now, people aren't going to want to open the door to somebody that wants to talk to them about that. And so it's it's a challenge to figure out how you're going to get those messages across. Is it going to be social media? Is it going to be phone calls? Is it going to be mail? Are there, you know, other advertising venues that we think people will see more of? You know, it's not that long ago that we uh, we started to have screens at the gas station, for example. So that's going to be what complicates this issue in all of the states, but especially for the battleground states. And that's why they're considered toss-ups is because um, even where Biden has a slight lead, it's within the margin of error of the polls. And we just really don't know how these other factors related to people's consideration of their health is going to go. One thing I can tell you is that generally speaking, older voters, people who are more using Social Security and Medicare a lot more, tend to vote Democratic. And of course, that's the population that has been most interested in voting by mail for health reasons. So, you know, you're seeing already very big returns in states that have mail-in ballot from uh, registered Democrats have been returning them at a much higher rate than Republicans. And so that is one reason why the president's trying to undermine the process and the vote counting process. And it's it's unfortunate because it's not warranted. As a poll worker myself, I can tell you that the states uh, have a lot of layers of protections against shenanigans at the polls. They've learned from history. So it really hasn't been since the early part of the 20th century that I think that we've had anything approaching rampant voter fraud. 
Thank you so much for joining the podcast and talking with me about the upcoming election and battleground states. It's been my pleasure. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Charlotte Reese, and we'll have another episode out soon.